McShane Bible Study, day 125, and we're starting in Numbers 12 and also doing 13 today. And 12 is the chapter where Miriam and Aaron spoke out against Moses. They're upset that he married a Cushite woman. And he says, well, we've heard from the Lord too. Shouldn't, you know, why is Moses so special? And it, it describes Moses as the meekest man in the world. He, he, he was just completely completely humble and meek and dependent on the Lord. And the Lord rose up in anger to defend his anointed one, Moses. He he brings out Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. It has him come out to the tent of the meeting. He shows up in this pillar of cloud. And he says, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? It's just so powerful. Moses was completely dependent on the Lord. And he looked, he didn't ever try to defend himself whenever people, because people rose up against him many times. Here are the closest ones to him rising up against him. And he simply humbles himself before the Lord and the Lord shows up as mighty on his behalf. And so then Miriam becomes leprous. Uh, Aaron uh, begs to Moses and Moses prays to the Lord that she be healed. And the Lord says, sure, but even if someone had spit in her face, she'd have to be outside the camp, right? So I'll have her be outside the camp for seven days, and then she can come back in. Numbers 13 is the chapter where they, uh, the spies are sent out into the land. And so they get one leader from each of the 12 tribes, and they, they send them in. And they, you know, they see it's a, you know, Moses' directions were that they see, is it a good land? What are the people like? What are the cities like? They come back saying, uh, yeah, it's a great land, but the people are strong and well fortified. They're giants and there's no way we can take it. Caleb says, of course we can take it. And he says, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. And then, the, but the people were louder and they said, no, we, you know, we, we can't do it. And I, one thing that sticks out to me, I, I kind of see, I'm just kind of making this up, but, uh, it's almost as if Caleb is like a kingly figure and Joshua, like the priestly figure, because Joshua is certainly a lot more famous than Caleb. But when it comes to this encounter of co conquering the land, Caleb is the bolder one. And, uh, but the other thing that stood out to me, um, and I think I've commented on this before, but the first time that the people of Israel were offered to take the promised land, it was during the season of tabernacles, which is the full glory resting within the, the people of God. The full glory of God is full presence. And, but they, as you know, we haven't gotten there yet. That's tomorrow, but uh, they're not going to take this land, this opportunity, and then they're going to go through the 40 years of, of struggle and travel to get the, the slavery off them, to have people that actually trust in the Lord that will take the land, and then they'll progressively take it. But that's at Passover. So they have to progress from Passover to Feast of Weeks to 
tabernacles or uh, booths and this progression that we all must go through and, and that through personally we must go through it and then throughout time all of humanity is going through it um, but at the beginning God offered it all at once it's just so difficult in our flesh to receive it all we have to struggle through the difficulties in order to receive the full blessing of God that he wants to give us it all right from the beginning just as he did Adam and Eve then in Psalm 49, actually, there's a similar theme. This is another from the sons of Korah in five. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? So why should I fear in times of trouble? It's, this would have been good <laughs> for the, the heads of the tribes of Israel to understand when they were first offered the promised land. Of course, there's giants. Of course, we have to walk in God, trusting in God that he is going to do the heavy lifting to clear out the, the giants in order for us to retake the promised land. There's no other way. But do we trust in him? Do we have faith in him? Or do we think it's all about ourselves? Uh, this, this psalm goes on a lot about... Uh, People who trust in wealth, so trusting in the world, and don't be impressed by them. Don't be intimidated by them. Don't spare a thought for them. They don't matter. And it ends, and he says this a couple times, verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So when people get filled up about who they are in the world or what they have in the world, it's complete foolishness, like a beast. And next we look at Isaiah 2, which is just an awesome chapter. I believe it's Micah 4 that's also very similar to this. Um, but he says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Isaiah is seeing, and I would put to you that this is our day. I mean, of course, Jesus introduced this, but the, the fullness of this reality has has not yet come about. But this is what God is doing, that his kingdom would raise above every other kingdom that the thrones authorities and powers are displaced with those of his choosing and that many people would stream and say come let us go up this mountain we want to go this way we want the lord to teach us his ways and his paths so understanding and walking in this new way of life for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So his, his way of living, his way of life, his way of community coming from the Lord. Verse 4, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So... I was meditating on this uh, recently without realizing we'd be reading it soon. Um, the 
it's kind of a cool picture of transitioning from an attitude of the heart of having to make spiritual war to an attitude of the heart of cultivating the Lord's garden and being oblivious to the difficulties out there and being protected by the Lord from the difficulties out there. And instead of worrying about spiritual warfare, tending the garden, seeing the fruit of the garden, the fruit of the promised land growing by our efforts with the Lord. You know, it's a common theme, but for Jesus and Paul, that we uh, we do the work. We can't make the fruit grow. We, you know, we don't, we don't know how the plant grows, <laughs> but we tend the soil. You know, we add some water. The Lord makes it grow. The Lord brings about the fruit. So it's this beautiful picture of us working together with the Lord and, and things growing and things multiplying. The culture of the house of the Lord growing. It, that's where it all began in, in a garden, right? Uh, rather than having to be in this place of, of violently taking the kingdom, which it's a stage that has to happen. But there comes a stage of gardening. There comes a there comes a, a time of moving from the violence of taking the kingdom and the spiritual warfare to completely meekly allowing our life to be in the Lord, for the Lord, by the Lord, having him be our rear guard and our protection and having us tend the garden so we can see the amazing things that he grows. And then, you know, he goes on and... He says, oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the day. So walk in the light, not in the darkness. And then it says, for you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east of the fortune tellers like the Philistines. So he goes on and on. I'm going to read it all, but it talks about how the, the people of God have turned away from the ways of God, the truth of God, and have stuck with uh, religious idols and worldly ways of thinking. Things that must be gotten rid of. And so 12, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Uh, 17, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So he will bring low everything that lifts itself up as high, haughty, prideful, important, self-important. Um, he will bring all these things low, and he alone will be exalted. 18, and the idol shall utterly pass away. So all the other forms of worship will be put away. There will be no more mixture on this holy mountain. 20, in that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. So you understand when we, and, and it can be religion that we've accepted from, it was established long before we got there, or it can be a religion that we've allowed to creep into our own practices. And we have to continually be on guard against these things. But they, these things are idols made of silver and gold, right? They're, they're just idols of our own creating, made by our own hands. And then the silver and gold, of course, things of the world. Uh, things of monetary wealth in the world. Do we cling to these things? This is in that day. So we'll set these aside to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs and from 
before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. So it's just, again, and this is constantly through scripture. This is how it looks. There is a judgment that is terrible for the ways of the worldly and wonderful for those who have completely submitted everything to him. And he blesses and there's, there's this dual reality going on. So we pray that, Lord, we give everything to you and you lead us into, into your blessing, Lord, into your life. And we wrap up in Hebrews 10, and I'm going to go out of order <laughs> because he starts with this, uh, talking about this amazing, amazing reality that Jesus makes possible for us, this amazing new life. But he ends with a strong warning. <laughs> and so rather than end the recording on that note, I'm going to start on that note and then I'll, I'll move up to the, to the, you know, the exciting stuff. Um, so he, he's talking about just judgment and he's going very strictly all, all the judgment. So that's in line with what we just talked about. 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, that is not a popular idea in Christianity, but it is the Bible that the Lord will judge his people. And he's done it many, many times throughout history. And every time he does it, the people of God say, oh, yeah, that happened to our forefathers. But now we're blessed by God and that would never happen to us. But it happens again and again because God has not yet had a, a fully purified people that walk in his ways and that is his plan and purpose for humanity and he will have it he has not changed his mind so the lord will judge his people but it's a, a fearful it's a fearful and wonderful thing to fall into the hands of the lord the, the living god and of course we all do fall into his hands so <laughs> either we'll fear we're fe filled with fear and awe and wonder at who he is and, and as Moses was meek, we lay our lives down for him and accept what he has for us. Or we go kicking and screaming and we end up in the same place. But then vengeance is his and he will repay. But then the very last verse in chapter 10 of Hebrews is 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So he, he just gave them a stern warning, but then he's kind of encouraging them at the end. But now we'll go back to the beginning, and it's, it's a, a wonderful promise for what Christ has done. The chapter starts out, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. So this is really powerful, for one, exactly what he's saying, but also what we can infer from it. He's saying that by giving the uh, offerings that God had prescribed through Moses, and the people would often dutifully do, but not really have a heart for God and his ways, and God said, I, I, I don't want these things. Um, even though he told, he required them, right? 
But Paul says, if this would have worked, if the cleansing of the sacrifice would have worked, then they would they no longer have any consciousness of sins. What we can draw from that is we should come to a place in the Lord where we no longer have consciousness of sins because we are more conscious of God and his work in us, of Christ, what he's done for us, and of this life that he's bringing us into, and that we have submitted our will to God. And in any way we still fall short, we wholeheartedly want him to remove it from us, and we trust in him to do it at his time, and we no longer go around thinking of ourselves as sinners saved by grace. We see ourselves as moved beyond that into living a life as a son of God, one who has been made clean through the blood of Jesus and has now died to that old life and has entered into a new life. And then if we go down to verse 8, it says, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. So he's just making the same point I just did. I've made many times. God prescribed sacrifices and offerings. But he says many times, even in the Old Testament, that he did not desire those things. He did not, they, they did not make people right with God when they were performed as mere religion. Nine, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So he says, Jesus introduced a way that is far beyond the old order of religion. And that is when we present our entire lives as a sacrifice and offering. And we say, I only want to do what you are doing, Father. Teach me your ways that I walk in your ways. Just like we just saw in Isaiah. Coming up the holy mountain saying, teach me your ways. I want to walk in your ways, God. He says, this supersedes the other, the religion. 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. So going back to what we said above, Jesus, by being this perfect life, is the offering that perfects us, even as we are still being sanctified. 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So this is the promise. It was set forth by Jeremiah and others in the Old Testament prophets and is, uh, you know, God's promise and purpose. Really, I mean, even Isaiah, what we read, kind of alluded to this as well, that God's purpose is to have a people taught by him directly. That doesn't mean we don't have, we aren't discipled or discipling. He, he wants a family, and there's an order in every family. There's positions, and he, he, his family is no different. But the idea is that we are all brought up into maturity, directly hearing and learning from the Lord. And then as a community, we're able to share. And so we are all blessed more and more because he speaks to one in one way and to another in another way. His, his glory, his wisdom, his love, his truth, comes out in different ways through each unique son. That is his purpose for us. And 
19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So Jesus has made a way through this curtain that before held back. Only one man in the whole world was allowed to go in there, and only one day a year. Jesus has made this way open to us that we can enter into the presence of God. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So Jesus has given us everything necessary for us to be completely cleansed from our old dead life, to be made new with a clean conscience, an assurance in faith that we are his and he is doing mighty things through us, in us, and around us. And that is all I have for you today. God bless you.